Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play. And my name is Zuki Stewart from Playfield. Together we are Why Play Works, the podcast that speaks to people radically reshaping the idea of work as play. In this episode, I speak to Rob Poynton. Rob is the author of Do Pause and Do Improvise. He divides his time between an off-grid house in rural Spain and Oxford, where he's an associate fellow at the Said Business School. For Rob, career has always been more of a verb than a noun, probably because he believes in playing around with things and people rather than trying to control them. For over 20 years, he has designed and facilitated workshops, retreats and pauses. In 2020, in a bout of invention prompted by the pandemic, he founded two new online ventures, Yellow, all about small group, slow burn, reflective learning, and the everyday improviser, which does what it says on the tin. Today we'll be talking about the role of play as a social technology, how the practices of improv can help us bring more play to our work and our lives, and the importance of the body-mind, to mention just a few of the juicy topics we cover. Well, it is such a pleasure. And in fact, it feels like quite a big deal interviewing you because (laughs) it really does. You laugh. But your book, Everything's an Offer, which I read about 10 years ago, like totally changed the course of my working life and sent me off on this playful, completely different path and is in fact the reason that we are here today. So thank you for writing your amazing book. Oh, that's very kind of you. I'm glad it had that effect. It's lovely to have met you. Yeah. It really did. Um, I'd love it if we could start by you telling us in your own words what you do. Yeah, always a killer question, really. Um, For a number of reasons, it's quite hard to define in my case, Uh, but also because it's always changing. You know, so one can go the abstract way and say essentially what I do is kind of uh, bring, kind of create spaces in which people can do things together that they wouldn't otherwise do. That's a very sort of abstract uh, description. If you want a more concrete one, you know, essentially I, I design and facilitate all kinds of workshops and retreats and programs, sometimes uh, for individuals, sometimes online, sometimes in person, uh, sometimes uh, for companies or business schools. Uh, but essentially it's that I'm really interested in how do we come together to do what you might call work, uh, you might call something else, um, in a way that can be more joyful and, uh, I was going to say easy, but I, but I mean in a particular sense, I mean with a sense of ease and actually a word I find myself using increasingly, grace. I love that, work with grace. Yes, I think we could definitely all do with more of that. And I'm also intrigued to know what the alternative to work, you said, if we could call, if we call it that, what else would you call it? Well, play. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. would, would be an obvious <laughs> candidate. Maybe that's leading the witness. But uh, the reason I hesitated, I think, is that because we do have uh, an association of work as it being kind of a grind. And mm. um, I mean, I'm sure some of that is necessary, that work can't always be joyful and fulfilling. But I, I don't see that it needs to be as soulless, as dehumanizing or alienation as it too often is, you know. And I think, therefore, that hesitating around what do we quite mean by work and uh, do we uh, associate work with a sort being a source of merit or worth or value whether that's literal metaphorical um and and are we understanding that as sensitively 
as we might? And can we ask our questions around what it means to do good work and what work looks like and feel like, feels like and, and what it takes to be in a space where we are working on things in a satisfying and fulfilling and fruitful kind of a way. So I guess that's why my work is always changing because I'm always kind of in that question. Yeah, how amazing. And I think what a kind of enlivening question to approach work with as an ongoing inquiry, something that is changing and not fixed. I think that's a really playful way of thinking about <clears throat> the concept of work. You've just talked a little bit about what work means to you. I'd love to know what does play mean to you? Well, it means uh, it means something very different from um, kind of forced fun. That's the first thing I think is really important to me. So I think for me, play and playfulness are related, but different. I think they're both of value. Uh, I suppose I'm probably more, I kind of tend to embrace more playfulness as a sort of attitude or something that infuses a lot of what I do. So I think you can do pretty much anything with playfulness. Uh, so I think that's an important part of what play means or includes for me. I think it sometimes, as I describe it, sometimes as a technology for approaching uncertainty. Mm. Um, obviously, a social technology. I think it's an intrinsically. I think it's intrinsic to life. I look at animals playing around to learn. I just, just on my way home just a few minutes ago, drove past this just incredibly playful puppy that's clearly not been trained that its owner just couldn't constrain and the whole the animal was just full of kind of joy and zest and life so i think that it's 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 part of the word you used enlivening i think it's hard to imagine a lively or enlivening place of work or occupation or family where there is no play so i think you know you could also put the com com question the other way around which is what happens when we don't have any and I think pretty quickly a world or a life without play or playfulness becomes quite quite grim, quite spartan, quite soul-destroying, really. You know, So it's quite important. But I started with a caveat because I don't think play is just about fun and games. You know, I, I'm not against fun and games, but I, I am sort of against pretending that fun and games is the whole shooting match, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And just listening to you describe that puppy, just the, yeah, the like exuberance that that image contains. And I love that definition of playfulness, exuberance, joy, kind of full of life and vitality. And can you tell me about a time when you felt playful recently? Well, let's see. Uh, yeah, just just this morning, I guess, um, you know, lurking around with one of my sons who came came down, we're talking about what we're going to have for lunch and he's on a diet which uh, for some reason includes rice but no other carbohydrates. And uh, and I said, <laughs> you know, just kind of a way of engaging with him, our timetables are very different as kind of saying, oh, you know, it's thinking we could have the meat that mum left in the fridge and we could have that maybe with some rice, you know. And so, <laughs> and I'm teasing him, you know, so in the context of that, a family relationship, a way of uh, reconnecting and and being light uh you know between the two of us and you know he's 20 years old so uh you know that levity uh particularly i think if i could it's even better if i can make fun of myself which you know because then there's a sort of equalizing going on so that'd be a ready example just from this morning yeah i think that's so nice and so you've written a number of books everything's an offer was the first one do improvise was another and also do pause 
And then um, do improvise. You talk about improvisation as needing this humility that you've just described and this um, kind of openness. So your work is kind of underpinned by improvisational theatre. And I've learned a lot about um, improv from you. Could you tell us a bit about the practices of, of improv? Because I know you've got a really neat six word way of describing them. Yeah, and it's timely because I'm working on the new edition of that of the Do Improvise book at the moment. So yeah, the 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 way I've captured what I think is the essence of the method of improv theatre, and it's worth noticing that there is a method. It's not mm. random. It's not happenstance. It's not down to pure talent. Um, so the way I've captured it is is in the three practices of noticing more, and so that's really about what you do with your attention. And what you notice, uh, you have some agency or choice in what you notice or don't. And there's a lovely saying is, you know, what you notice becomes your life. So if you pay attention to fears and worries the whole time, you can become a fearful, worried person. Uh, and vice versa, if you pay attention to opportunity and joy and pleasure and beauty, then that changes who you are as well. So the first piece is noticing more, uh, which is around attention and intention to a certain extent. Uh, the second piece, which is often the one that people find most difficult, is to let go. And I think the reason people find it difficult is twofold. One is I think we've been taught since we're very small to hold on. We have a very acquisitive mentality as well as an acquisitive society. Um, so that feels very countercultural, very kind of goes against the grain. And I think the second thing is because people often interpret it as kind of abandoning everything, as sort of jettisoning. They kind of, that's not in the practice. I'm, I'm inviting you to let go or loosen your hold on something temporarily, right? To not try and hold on to everything the whole time. But, but I think people, because of their fear of it, kind of interpret it that way and then can, funnily enough, close down quite quickly around that if you're not careful. And then the third piece is to use everything, which is really just a, just the most wonderful, simple, very ecological reframing. It's a, it's a sort of improv practice based way of saying waste is food. Everything can be taken and used and repurposed in some sense. Doesn't make it necessarily nice. Doesn't make it what you wanted. But if you frame it in that way, what's really interesting is it's sort of, it's self creating. If you frame everything as an offer, as, as an improviser would put it, then your mind, which has this extraordinary capacity to create possibility, will find a way to use it. You know, so a failure, an error, a mistake, a shortcoming, a, any of those things can be very quickly reframed. Then, of course, the three of them all connect together. So if you kind of let go of assumptions and beliefs, then it's easier to see where's the offer in something. Uh, if you're not paying attention, then you've got less to work with. Or if you're paying attention, you might notice that you're holding on to a belief that you might loosen your hold on. So uh, it's a very uh, interconnected and, funnily enough, non-linear model where you can kind of start anywhere and use anywhere. Gary, who you know, Gary Hirsch, who, with whom I founded On Your Feet, we did a uh, we do a session called The Everyday Improviser, which is a kind of very brief introduction to these ideas because um, you don't need much time to get to grips with them. And somebody said to us in that session, they said. Uh, this model seems to be indestructible. Is there anywhere it doesn't work? And we kind of, <laughs> kind of thought for a minute and kind of went, no, not really. Um, <laughs> because it's very non-prescriptive. It doesn't say how it's going to work. It's just an invitation. It's a set of invitations 
to ask yourself these questions around how am I noticing what am I doing with my attention? What am I clinging on to that I could let go of and, and what's there that I could use? And those can be used constantly, iteratively, immediately in a spontaneous way or reflectively. Um, they can be used on a small scale, on a big scale, and they can sit alongside and complement any other way of approach, approaching things. So they don't have to displace your, you know, other things that are useful and valuable to you. Yeah, I love that. And I, well, I think why I was attracted to this work in the first place was like, you know, when I read your book, it kind of spoke to me as a way, improv as a way of living, like a practice for living, a practice for working, a practice for relating to other people. And for me, it was totally freeing in all sorts of areas of my life. And that's something that was certainly that was true for me as well. When I first met Gary, which was how I came across it, uh, I had exactly the same sensation. I went, oh my God, you know, this is, this is freeing is a lovely word for it. This is so uh, empowering would be another and, and, and liberating. And this idea that people in the theater, which for me is just a laboratory, it means that they've devoted some time and energy to kind of working out what works. Um, and, and, and they're sort of playing with this, this thing that is so valuable and useful in all these other realms and walks of, of life. And I think it's that because it's, I wouldn't claim it's the way to approach things, but it's a really useful way. And as I've worked more and more with it, I've come to realize how much in common it has with pretty unlikely traditions like Stoicism. You know, quite, quite often somebody who's read and thought quite a lot about Stoicism who comes into contact with the improv stuff will go, oh, look, this is just the same. Um, or, you know, I have a relationship with uh, a Zen practitioner in the States, Ed, Ed, Edward S.B. Brown, who I've known now for 25 years. And and he's a close friend, really. And that came about because we observed the overlaps between the improv work and the Buddhism, the approach of Buddhism, particularly around accepting, uh, being accepting of what is rather than trying to project onto the world the way you would like it to be. Um, and of course, my way into it was by seeing the similarities with complex adaptive science. So the science of complexity, Zen Buddhism, Stoicism, Stoicism and improv all have a, a lot in common. Um, and there's a lovely book by Oliver Berkman, which you may be familiar with, called The Antidote. And uh, and in it, he's exploring kind of what are the paths or sources of human satisfaction or, or contentment. And uh, he has a chapter on Stoicism, he has a chapter on Zen, uh, and he could easily have had a chapter on improv in that book. It would have sat very happily alongside those those other chapters. And I think that's why it's so powerful and so useful. And of course, I'm not... You know, I love Stoicism and, and Zen in different ways, but the one of the virtues of improv is it's very light and here it comes, playful. So <laughs> you, you don't have to take it or yourself too seriously. One of the things that Gary and I talk a lot about in the everyday improviser is, is you know, allow yourself to forget to do this completely and then you'll remember at some point and you can start again and don't beat yourself up about that. And um and we say that obviously based on personal experience. Here we are talking about this stuff and working with it, and we forget the whole time, you know. And I love that the kind of um, the forgivingness of improv and how you the value of mistakes, being able to make mistakes, cock something up, and then celebrating celebrating that as something yeah. fabulous. There's a, you may be interviewing Steve for all I know for this podcast, Steve Chapman, but I know that you know him. And uh, Steve and I have an interestingly different attitude to that word mistake. So Steve says, mistakes are great, love them, bring them on. And I kind of go, I don't acknowledge their existence. 
for 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 me it's kind of like there's two ways of saying the same thing really but we just frame it differently because from my perspective i just kind of go well well nothing's a mistake it's only a mistake until you've worked out how to use it because mistake assumes that there was a right way to do it because this is now the wrong way you know so it's interesting how even within this this world there are still options and choices i wouldn't say steve is wrong and he wouldn't say I'm wrong, but we just think of it a different way whilst essentially embracing the same principle. Yeah, so I guess you're coming at it being an like, unintended consequence. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And so for people who haven't necessarily used improv, like, why would you bring this into work? Surely it creates like unruly chaos, as you describe in your book. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> in, in a way, um, the, the fact of the matter is you're improvising already, so you're not bringing anything in. Um, because nobody's got a script and nothing ever goes according to plan. And if the last two years have taught us anything, it should be that that is the norm. And it's the norm at every level and every scale of society. And what's interesting is our very, very strong hankering for control, which is, if you like, what goes on in in the world of work, which a friend of mine, Chris Katana, brilliantly describes as the managerial fantasy, the idea that you can control everything rigorously and determine outcomes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it is a fantasy. So the 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 truth is that we're all improvising the whole time in the seams, in between those bits of structure. But we're probably not as skilled as it, and certainly not as conscious of it as we could be. So my invitation would be to become more skilled and more conscious by using it more deliberately and understanding understanding better with more nuance and subtlety the relationship, the complementary relationship between structuring, planning. Uh, and organizing things in a rigorous way and adapting creatively in an improvisational way. And I would argue that you can't do anything just by planning and you can't do anything just by pl by improvising alone. And that if you want to do anything at all, you need to understand what the relationship is between those two things. So uh, I would say you're doing it already, get better at it, become more aware of it, notice where it's going on and then amplify and become more skilled and sensitive uh, uh, using it better. Mm, and I think what I love about these practices is they are practices that you can learn and kind of develop that muscle. Yeah, I've just interviewed a whole bunch of people for, for the new edition of the book. And what's really interesting is how deep it's gone. You know, I've spoken to people who've been using these practices for, for many years and each of them really says, you know, it's just such a fundamental part of the way I see the world now that I can't really separate it out, you know. And so it becomes deeply integrated into your set of attitudes and beliefs. And I think that's um, that's really, really, really powerful, uh, you know. And I joke about it, but it's a serious joke, which is you can learn in about 20 minutes something that is going to be valuable to you for the rest of your life. And, and all of the rest of it is practice. And the thing about practice is you're not practicing in a convergent way to get to a perfect expression of something. It's a different meaning of the word practice. It's a being in. It's a constantly experiencing. Uh, it's an expansive or a deepening kind of a practice. And kind of novelty is infinite because the circumstances of all your, your life, the, in, it, in its very details, in its very sort of everyday details, or in its kind of uh, grand plans are always changing and bringing you novelty. So the idea of you know noticing more 
is always going to have a new application as well as being this is very simple idea and you're always going to have all these new opportunities to see what else could you notice or how else or what aren't you noticing and so that combination of kind of quick and easy to learn endlessly useful constantly yielding and sort of deepening it's beautiful i think yeah and as you're saying it i'm imagining this like kaleidoscope that just opens out and opens out and opens out mm. and kind of ever more intriguing patterns. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a lovely image, the one you, you know, the image of the kaleidoscope of, of the way life works. And I think that's why, for me, the improv practices resonated because I think they are, as I say, just an expression. There are many expressions in many different media and very different cultures, different times in history and all the rest of it. But these are definitely an expression of something that is deeply resonant within the process of living and life, you know. So if you look at the way that, ecosystems evolve, that kaleidoscopic image you've just invoked is a pretty good one. You know, there are a few basic principles and then you set kind of energy and matter free to combine and recombine and and you get this extraordinary cornucopia of intricate interconnection. And in a way that's the improv practice is a sort of human echo of that very deep organic process. And so I think that's partly why it feels right to us. We sort of recognize it, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I know that. I mean, you've done decades of work. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's funny. It makes me laugh. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Rob scrunched his nose when I said decades of work. Um, but you have, you know, you have a wealth of experience in this area. You set up On Your Feet, which was is a collaboration between the arts, specifically improv and business. You've worked on the Oxford University Strategic Leadership Programme for a long time. And you've worked with countless groups and organisations in a playful way. Have you got any stories where you've seen play having a real, really powerful impact in a working environment? So many. So, I mean, I'll start with my own working environment. I remember once turning up at Oxford uh, and talking to Marshall Young, who was then the director of the of the leadership programme there. And uh, he sort of waved the, um, the timetable at me, you know, uh, and said, you know, oh, look, you know, I've got the plan for this week. And he said, but it's a fig leaf, really. Um, and I'd burst out laughing, you know, that here's the fellow of strategic leadership of, you know, Templeton College as it then was in Oxford, calling the plan and program for the week, which is meant to be this sort of holy sacrament, a fig leaf, you know. Uh, <laughs> and he said, we all know it doesn't really matter. It's smoke and mirrors. And what he was referring to is that the, 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 a, large, a large part of the value of that program is to create this informal space. So what he meant by fig leaf was, yes, you need to have somebody come and sit and do a talk or run a session on something which sounds important and interesting because you've got people coming from Nigeria or New Zealand or, or wherever. But, but he was displaying to me and communicating to me as somebody that worked for him the fact and the knowledge and the understanding that the program is not about the content. It's about what people, the, the climate and the atmosphere that's created that allows people to challenge each other, question each other, learn from each other, enrich each other. And he did all of that with a humorous comment in a few seconds. And I'm still thinking about it 15 years later, and it's a concept I use. And then he went on and he said, yeah, we're going to get them into the medieval theme park early, right? So now you kind of go, what? So here he is kind of seeming to make fun of his own university. Again, this for me, this was a pivotal point in my education and learning something I still contemplate now. Because what he's doing by, by saying medieval theme park is calling attention to the theatre of the architecture of Oxford and getting me thinking probably at that moment for the first time 
about the role of space and uh, physical buildings in creating the atmosphere or climate that that program's all about, as well as displaying a wonderful quality of neither he nor the university itself taking itself too seriously and thinking of themselves as important and august. So again, that levity uh, opened a whole universe of possibilities. I remember at the end of that week, so a whole week and very intense week later, I remember very well the drive home and my mind thinking, oh my God, yeah, theme park. And, 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 and realizing this whole, whole world of thinking about space and setting in a different way, you know, and, and that's two, two tiny little comments. Just last week, I was talking with Chris Katana, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. This, I think, is a brilliant example of playfulness in action. So uh, he, he, he told me the story of how he ran a game. So this one is a game-based thing called the Tear Game. Uh, now, here's the thing. Chris had never even played the chair game, let alone run the chair game. He'd just heard about it from me. Uh, and I heard about it from somebody else and, you know, so on and so forth. And so he, I think very bravely, took a group at the end of a program they were on at Oxford to play this game that he himself had never played. So that's sort of double playfulness because he's having to be open and honest and hold lightly and be playful around the, the, the fact that he's got no idea really how this game works at all. And it, it what was beautiful about this particular story was that he had this option kind of weighed up. It was a Thursday afternoon. The group had been there all week and he did a very good thing, which was to check in with how people were feeling. And almost universally, he got back, we're tired. And of course they were tired. They'd been on a business school program. They'd been cramming. They'd been doing case studies, you know. And so what's the value of the play or the playfulness here? Well, first to speak to them as human beings, to give them what they need as full embodied persons, you know. They can't take in any more information. And so, again, if we think of Chris as a leader, he's showing sensitivity and care for the group. And he's got a response, which is this game. And they are just their heart sore. They're like, oh, thank God. You know, and then here's the coda. It turns out that because of that sort of soaring energy and, and they're, and they're like, oh, you're looking, you can, you I'm feeling you, you know, you're, you're seeing us here. They then engage in it in a way where they learn tons from it, you know, and Chris himself along the way invents, this is triple play now. So he invents. <laughs> it's getting very meta. Yeah, very meta. Yeah, I like that. But he, he, he invents a way to frame it for them that I never would have thought of because he's new to it, right? So that innocence that playfulness brings, which was about, you know, seeing this sort of seemingly chaotically crazy game as what might happen to them when they go back into the office next week, you know, and when things start changing faster around them than they can see or control and the game giving them some clues as to how to do that, you know. So that, so that I thought was just, just amazing. It's, that's a sort of game-based one. And a, another one I'd just mentioned, and then I, I'll stop. I mean, I could go on forever with these examples, but um, is, is again, a different kind of place. So asking people to do modeling. So a friend of mine, Klaus Jacobs uh, from Switzerland, he helped develop this methodology of using Lego. And, and so what I'd ask people to do is you give them a whole bunch of Lego. Now that alone changes the room. And you get them to reacquaint themselves with Lego, um, which is a thing that's of value for its own sake, because as they, in order to reacquaint themselves with Lego, they kind of have to remember what it was like to be a child. So there's a part of themselves they're now bringing back into play, uh, literally into play. 
and get them to do something straightforward. First of all, just to like build something tall or, or, or whatever. And then you invite them to start modeling things that are of interest and relevance to them. So you might ask them to build their leadership challenge. You might ask them to build their place of work, but not literally the building. You might, you know, so anyway, you get them to build this model and they're using Lego, if you like, as a three-dimensional constructional language. Uh, it's pretty simple to use. Most people can use it. Um, and so that's not a barrier. It's not like you have to ask them to make art or something. Um, and, and then once they've built their model, they're kind of making different choices and looking at things in different ways, using different metaphors along the way. And then you can look at it and then turn it around. And then you can have other people look at it and say, oh, isn't that interesting? You've got the person very high up or you've got no people or why is it all green? And it might just go, well, I could only find green bricks, you know, might not have a deep answer, but you can inquire into it in kind of different ways. And so that would be a shift from being playful with the hand rather than playful with the mind or, or the language and using this kind of different different language. Yeah, and I think that is so important in a world where we use our bodies so little at work. You know, once upon a time, work was physical and would have been physical. And now the majority of us work on computers. You know, we are not using our bodies in the same way. And I think bringing an embodied component to how we work together is really important, as you've just described. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to a very, very important point, um, you know, which is the fact that we are not bodies with minds, we are body minds, to use Candace Pert's term. And we easily forget uh, that we, that thinking is an embodied activity. Even mathematicians still write formulae on whiteboards or blackboards, depending on their generation. And the act of writing the reams of equations they write up is still a physical act. And you can't do mathematics, I'm reliably informed by people that know about these things at Oxford, without that physical act. So even that which seems most disembodied is still physicalized, you know, and still somatized. And our thought and our emotion and our thinking in its deep, broad sense takes us back to Buddhism. Um, it necessarily involves the body, uh, both materially, uh, whether it's making, making marks on a blackboard or wielding an axe or pressing a key on a computer, and also kind of physiologically, that, that our emotional state, our physical state will change the ideas we have, the things we see, the way we feel, uh, and certainly, and probably most importantly, the way we relate to each other. Um, and so getting people to do something physical at the beginning of a session which online I think is increasingly important, kind of is, I think people have learned now and they're more aware of the fact that that is not just a trivial kind of fun thing to do. In fact, it's interesting that the academics have a jargon for it. I mean, they call it a creating learning readiness. The rest of it might call it icebreaking or warm up, which sort of trivializes it, if, if you like. But when you call it creating learning readiness, um, you go, ooh, that's a thing now. And and actually, uh, this is the upside of academia. I think there are lots of downsides, but the, academi the academic discipline, which will notice there is something there, which is a phenomenon, which we could well describe with a sort of slightly pretentious, perhaps, but impressive sounding term that tells us something about it. In other words, creating learning readiness. In other words, oh, look, you've got to be ready to learn. You can't just learn. And you need to do something to create that, you know, and... And so it immediately gives you kind of purchase. And I feel like that leads us in perfectly to kind of what do you think are the things that are required to be in place for us to be able to play and to learn? That is the question. 
if you like, that my life's work is trying to answer perpetually. Mm. Because what my job is to do is to create those things, you know. So what's required, I think there's infinite subtlety to it. But at the same time, I don't think that means you can't say some very simple, very obvious, very practical things about that. So what's what's necessary? Some framing is mm. necessary. And the framing happens physically. Uh, it happens temporarily. So physically, where are we? Mm. Um, temporarily, how long are we here for? And how are we going to use that time? Um, I suppose you could go on and say, who are we? Uh, you know, who are we that are here together? Uh, and then a kind of, what are we about? You know, what are we here for? Or, or what do we care about? Um, yeah. It's very easy to translate all this back into kind of fairly obvious sounding business language. Oh, he's just saying, you know, what's the role of the meeting? How long is it lasting? All those kind of things. But the language I'm using very deliberately gives it a very different feel and invites you to think about it in a different way. Um, it's very different saying, you know, who are we here to each other and what do we care about? That is saying, what's the objective of the meeting? But one way or another, how you frame it probably is the single most important thing to do to create the conditions where people can play fruitfully. And then thinking about, well, what, what stimulus is helpful or required? You know, so do we need to uh, have materials of certain kinds and what kinds? Again, you can see how in a way in the normal business world, we've sort of, we've sort of done this, but we just assume that the materials you need is a PowerPoint slide, you know, and you kind of go, that's almost certainly not the case that that's you know <laughs> they are occasionally useful but really that's not you know you should think more deeply and more sensitively about you know do we need food you know do we need music do we need cushions um you know do we need people who aren't here yet all hopefully all of this sort of adds up and connects i think the other thing you need to do is to set mood tone atmosphere climate so you you need to give permission or issue invitations or create an atmosphere where this is not only accepted, but invited to be playful mm. and light. And then the question is, okay, great, but how do you do that? Well, the answer is you have to embody it. You, if you're the person convening or leading or inviting, need to display that. You can't instruct people to be playful. I mean, people do, and it's awful. It makes you cringe. If you just dwell on that for a few moments, it's so easy to do that, you know, because you kind of go, let's take that example. Imagine I was to instruct people to be playful. So you kind of, you know, I might start a session by saying, today it's really important that we play around, you know, and already, you know, it's like, you know, you something's gone on or, or you've kind of acknowledged what's in the room or I don't know, I say to people at the beginning, you know, you're probably being really saying they're feeling really apprehensive because you're about to do this stuff that you don't know what it is that sounds really stupid and you're worried going to be embarrassed, you know. And then I leave a pause and they're all sitting there kind of going, oh God, yeah, yeah. And I go, and you'd be right to be apprehensive, you know. And as soon as you do that, you've got levity. And they're like, what? what? He's saying that I'm right, you know, and there's an emotional thing where you make people feel right. They like that. So yeah. then they open up a bit more and then they go, oh, what is it we're going to do? So again, beginnings, framing, mood, tone, um, but you can't, you, you've got to be in it. So then that kind of goes back another stage where you kind of go, so where would, if you were to want to start to working this, to work this way, where would you start? Well, right here, you got to start with yourself. So mm. you've, you've got to be aware of yourself. It sounds like an obvious thing, but it's quite hard to be. That, that's a skill, that's a capacity you develop. 
And one of the things I got very interested in over the last few years, and I found myself saying very often in sessions is, you know, that just because so being aware of what you're feeling isn't automatic. Just because they're your feelings, you don't necessarily know what they are. So it takes mm. us back to the improv practices. One of the great sources of noting is to know, oh, I'm noticing I'm feeling frustrated or I'm noticing I'm feeling anxious or I'm noticing this feels great. And then, of course, you can use that. Um, you, can, you can then say to people, I'm noticing I'm feeling a bit nervous about this, which is different from just feeling nervous and different from feeling something and not feeling good and not even knowing that it's nervousness. So there's a lot, uh, but it starts with you and framing and holding is a big part of it. I suppose it's also probably useful to think about what it's not. Hmm. So you don't, to create the possibility of player playfulness, particularly at work, you have to be wary of your default settings of wanting to control the outcome, wanting hmm. to be sure of what's going to happen. So you, those are things that you don't want. And so you have to, those are candidates to let go of. And I love that idea of, you know, it all begins with you modeling it. And by modeling it, you give permission for other people to do it. And um, that feels so accessible. There's a story I, I do love to tell this one. So you may have heard it from me before, but um, it illustrates many of the points we've been talking about. So I was working with a group of leaders on the leadership program and I was playing a game with them, which involves them all standing in a long line. And so you got half the group, 15 or so people standing in a long line, trying to pass a message along through physical gestures effectively. And there's the rest of the group kind of looking around. And the way it works mechanically is that, imagine they're all standing as it were facing like a cash machine or something in a queue. And when it's each person's turn to, to, to show the message, which is a number of gestures, they tap the person in front of them on the shoulder who turns around, they show them once, step away, and then it goes on down the line. And so this was kind of happening and it got part way down the line and uh, uh, this man tapped the person in front of her on the shoulder and she didn't turn around. And so he tapped her again and she still didn't turn around. So he tried a third time and she's just stayed there. She, then he gave up and threw his arms up and the, the group is kind of feeling nervous at this point. The people who are further down the line can't see this. So they've got a sense that something weird is happening, but they don't know what. The group that all looking on, all of a sudden everybody's looking at me, right? Going, oh, is this right? Is this wrong? And my tendency was to feel, oh, I've explained this badly. She's forgotten. I need to step in and correct it. So notice how many concepts that there are there are in that little sentence of me being right, there being a, a right way to do it, me having made a mistake. And something in me that day just kind of went, well, or maybe not. And so what happens, I was leaning against the wall and I kind of went to step in and go, oh, you know, Maria, you, you might want to turn around. And I stopped myself. And I just leant back against the wall and kind of and smiled. So this is the embodiment piece. And I kind of and I genuinely got curious about, oh, I wonder what will happen. So this is that <laughs> it starts here. And I could feel instantly talk about power communication leadership. In that moment, my gestures of me just kind of going, oh, this is cool. And, and I could feel the room go, oh, this is cool. I mean, nobody said anything, but I could just feel them. Their attention went back on to what happened. And um, eventually, you know, the group worked out a way to deal with the glitch. They just sort of made something else up and then carried on and sort of did a hack, if you like, without realizing that's what they were doing. And the whole thing then turned out to be such a fascinating debrief conversation. And, and that was me kind of letting go and being playful with the game. The game went, quote unquote, wrong. Yeah. But it going the way it went 
turned out to be much more interesting and that kind of lightness of, of hold. And all of it communicated just with a gesture. Now, a gesture, I couldn't, I couldn't have faked that. I had to genuinely be curious and like, oh, this is really interesting, which is where the prior work one's done on oneself comes into play. You've told us some amazing stories and I think there's just so much to unpack in there. But in kind of summary, what would you say are the biggest surprises you've had in your work with play? Well, there's a whole series of what I'd call little surprises, which uh, uh, we call jumping up and down moments uh, because they're so pleasing that you jump up and down. You know. Um, <laughs> so to illustrate, by example, I was playing a story building game once at a business school in South Africa and it seemed to have just just sort of terminally messed up that there were two halves of the story that just didn't fit together it was just like oh god they really haven't found a way to connect or listen which often happened and then somebody stepped in and said and they just put an and the way this game works is you just put words in to connect them and they just put in an and and it was like oh my god that's magic <laughs> You know, or it could have been a but, I can't remember the detail, but the single word, that tiny piece of connective tissue made everything like in a movie when suddenly you discover, oh my God, she's her daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it all just clicked. So that's what I would call a little surprise. And that's an example of it. And there are umpteen of those where the fact that you're willing to be playful, and by that I mean not be locked onto the way the outcome should look, actually creates an infinite number of ways to succeed rather than the kind of one predetermined right one. The sort of bigger surprises, I think, are where you, through being playful, you, you suddenly everything looks different. You know, so mm. just to use an example, so the, the one I gave earlier, those few small comments, jokes of Marshall's, if you like, changed how I understood what we were doing with the program, unleashed a whole set of synthesis that I then did of how this program works, which now 10 or 15 years later, I'm about to sort of pass on to somebody else who's about to take, you know, take up the directorship of that program. And so when play really works, it's suddenly, you know, it's like drawing, it's like opening this huge door and all of a sudden you go, oh my God, there's all of this or, or this is one of those. And, and I don't think you can do that with the sort of narrowing I don't think you can do that with just your kind of mental concepts and frames. You know, I think if you look at great terms, you know, great pieces of language, they, they're normally playful or they've, or they've been invented playfully. I think it, the, the kind of essence of play is that it allows you to see things in a way you wouldn't otherwise imagine. And this sense of just enormous possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bit I've talked less about, and maybe because I take it all for granted, but it shouldn't be taken for granted, is what play does to how we relate to each other. Mm. You know, so when people engage in play, so if you take the group I was talking about with Chris Katana, they're exhausted. They've, they feel like they've been put through the mill and, and now they get to be with each other in a different way and play off each other and connect to mm. each other. And the way that that particular game works, they each get to explore how each of them wants to play it. So we're doing something together, which is very connective, but we can each do it in our own way. And that's, I think, another quality of play. And if you think about, you know, Gary Hirsch, my partner in, in On Your Feet, what, what Gary brings is just a sort of a jo joy and delight in people co-creating and connecting together. And just putting Gary in a room with people 
he had he had this is another great story actually he and other colleagues but particularly gary had a best part of 10 years of work with disney the disney theme parks division where basically they would say to gary come and be in a room with us he didn't have to do any prep he didn't have to do anything i mean he'd offer exercises or he'd maybe facilitate a bit but what they really wanted was his capacity to create that climate where people have a different kind of energy a different kind of connection to each other and he so embodies mm. it it's just contagious you know and so you know most play i think is connective and collective even when you play a game of solitaire you're sort of playing against or with yourself or your former self or your future self but also you're you're playing you know you'll talk about it with other people or you're at least playing with the people that invented the game you know it's hard to imagine play being entirely solitary although i wonder if you can be playful on your own i don't know but it's a bit like that famous you know newton quote we stand on the shoulders of giants you know to push this idea a bit further or to be a bit more rigorous you know it's it's almost impossible for human beings to do anything on their own because even if you know i'm sitting writing a book at the moment that's pretty solitary except i'm recalling all the people i've worked with and telling stories about and i'm consulting with people and next doing the illustrations and i'm checking ideas out and there'll be something in this conversation that will end up in the book and you know so so we're never really alone and and i think that that's important to acknowledge as well it's it's this play has such value for connection yeah i love that so do you have a playful practice um that you think is really useful that you could share with our listeners as a way kind of into this as a way of injecting more playfulness into their work that's interesting i you know the last couple of years i've worked uh i've not been around people very much like so many of us haven't you know so i think that my compensating playful practice will be to have conversations with people who aren't as it were on my path with people who are in the margins apropos of nothing uh, so I had an occasion last week. I was I had quite a busy day on Thursday, and I had this call in with somebody who is actually a, a teacher, a former teacher, a retired teacher at one of the schools my children went to. So my relationship with him is really quite remote in some ways, you know. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm so busy. Why am I talking to this guy this afternoon? But I thought, well, you know, I've got this commitment. I do like him. So that was enough to sort of make me honor the commitment. And then we just had this amazing conversation that spawned so many ideas and connections and ended up with, you know, Yellow, which is my current business, sponsoring him to go to a festival by a really interesting think tank. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why. And so I think for me, that would be a playful practice, would be talking to people who I actually have no reason to talk to and getting some kind of lateral input and and changing the subject, you know. And that's something I, I can do from my solitary hilltop. I don't need to find you know i don't need to go to a tennis court or anything like that to to do that or get a rugby team together or or whatever so that'd be one um i think the other one i'd encourage to is is this a practice i i mean i just love playing around with words so i have various conversational partners with whom i'm always i don't know if this qualifies as a practice because it's not a sort of deliberative thing but it's i'm always on on the lookout for for being able to muck around with words and maybe in a WhatsApp conversation, be playful with that. And, you know, so again, another example, Yellow, the business I run now, which I just mentioned, was born out of a WhatsApp group called the School of Thoughtfulness, which was a sort of joke. And the School of Thoughtfulness invented 
uh, this fictitious journal that you know was going to be called the Journal of Messy Thinking. And as soon as you say that to yourself, you kind of go, God, I wonder what that would be. You know? So a practice could be anything that you name or title is like mess with the words, play around with the words, you know. So don't call it a catch-up session, you know, call it a lark around or call it a, you know, uh, I don't know, call it something that it's not normally called and see then what that suggests, you know. Yeah, and I think that's so nice because it creates a completely different invitation, doesn't it? Coming back to that idea of modelling and giving people permission. Yeah. I think that's so nice and so simple. Yeah, it's got me thinking, actually, I wonder what, what else you could call a podcast, you know, or an interview, you know, um, what would be the playful way to uh, to mess around with the title of this piece? Yeah, like an audio noodle. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's already that invites a different kind of contribution doesn't it you know it's good yeah yeah i like it um oh rob it's been such a delight to talk to you and i feel like this could you know i could go on for hours but i w will close it there and just say thank you for your playfulness and for sharing your stories and your playful practices um and it's just been a delight well thanks to you for for asking i think that you know the work that you're engaged in now i think is absolutely brilliant and you know, this experience uh, for me has been kind of illuminating and uh, and delightful as well. It's like it's it's there's a real playful art to to asking the questions, and I don't mean a sort of the interviewer skill. There's that too, but I mean actually posing the questions, embracing the questions, putting the questions kind of out there, and and those questions get me thinking. You know, so so this again is an illustration of playfulness in action. I've probably said things today. That I hadn't thought of before because you're asking and also you ask in the context of a relationship that that you and I have so there's there's a climate here it's it's very different from being interviewed by a journalist which I have had done to me and that's how it feels it's something that he's done to you but it's a very different thing so thank you so Lucy how was your conversation with Rob oh it was so lovely I mean there was so much that we went into and I could have, as I said, let it go on for hours. I think the thing that really struck me was playfulness and improv, particularly as a social technology, as Rob described it, for approaching uncertainty and complexity. And I just loved that way of describing it. I thought it was very kind of apt for this moment in time, your conversation, where he talked about kind of what do we mean by work? And I think you used the, the term kind of, it's an ongoing inquiry right now. What do we mean by work? And that just felt, as you say, this kind of time of uncertainty felt very apt for this moment. And that sense that um, going back to the question of, you know, what is good work? And the role that play can play in working with more ease and grace. And I just really liked that idea of working with grace. And, you know, what does that look like? What does it feel like? When he talked about the difference he saw between play and playfulness, I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and those two terms mean different things to him because that's really how I see them. And that you can kind of, playfulness is leaning into an attitude and a mindset where you can actually approach very non-play things playfully. He gave that lovely example of just talking about making lunch with his son. And you can you could approach that kind of task playfully or not. And I just love that kind of how he teased out those differences that something might not be play and very much not just fun and games, but you can approach basically anything in life with that playful mentality, which I loved. I also, I thought the six words, the guide 
kind of improvisation as a practice were just so helpful. And I found his openness in that the fact that he often forgets them, right? And he kind of thinks, oh, hang on, I'm I'm kind of not living by those principles at all. And his openness in that that he kind of slips, I suppose, from his playful practice. I found that really reassuring and heartening. And that I find again, I find myself being like, ah, oh, I'm I'm not doing those things and noticing that and kind of recalibrating myself. And I just found that's from someone who's so well-versed and immersed in this world of improvisation, the fact that he sometimes forgets, I thought, well, that's great. It doesn't mean we failed when we do that. It's just, okay, get back on that wagon. Um, but it's very human to, 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 to forget these things. Yeah, and I also think, you know, so those practices are let go, notice more, use everything. And the way we're kind of brought up, he said at one point with letting go, for example, we've been taught since we were tiny to hold on. So it's kind of really counter to the way we're brought up and the way we're schooled. And so it is this practice. And I loved how he describes the practices as, as invitations, because it's like, you know, when you're told to do something, you I don't know, if you're like me, you automatically want to do the opposite. But like when you're invited, it feels like, oh, yeah, I want to come to this party. And I think <laughs> kind of making playful invitations feels like the way forward. Yeah. The other thing that I just thought was brilliant was when he was talking about Marshall at Oxford University describing Oxford as the medieval theme park and those kind of reframes that can help turn something you know that's like serious intimidating into something you know that's the complete opposite. He coined some terms that I just found super juicy which I loved Uh, this idea of the managerial fantasy yes that was amazing (laughs) (laughs) and this idea that no one has a script no one has complete control despite really we're all kind of operating under this illusion that some people do have control and his point that we're actually all improvising all the time but we're not doing it consciously or to be honest particularly skillfully and I find that really exciting as an opportunity that the more we engage with this idea that we don't have control we're all improvising and how can we engage with that more I found that really really exciting yeah and it's so freeing because it means like all you have to do is like be in that moment that's the only thing you have any control over and that I find like Mm. deeply relieving no there there were two really practical examples he shared that I just want to share with the world far and wide was around this idea of kind of embodiment again and and shifting energy in the room by just getting up and moving right at the start of a session I thought that's something we could all do before any meeting you have you can just say let's stand up let's stretch and just share how we're arriving Um, that small amount of movement can really get you in your bodies and shift the energy in the room. And the second was the lovely idea of thinking about how you're framing a session, just in how you title it. So rather than team catch up or status report, what different name can you give this gathering to just give it a different edge and to invite people to show up slightly differently? And I loved your audio noodle, (laughs) which I feel like we're doing right now. I feel like we're audio noodling right now. Me too. Um, (laughs) But it was just... You can change the nature of something just by naming it slightly differently. And that was something that I was noodling on afterwards. And I love that term, learning readiness that he used. I think that's really powerful. And also like as facilitators, you know, if we don't embody it, I think he said it's over. And that, that is so true. I know for in myself that when I'm not feeling something, it really affects a group dynamic. And then I think, you know, something we can all take away is how playfulness can make everything look different and it's like putting a new pair of glasses on so my my invitation to you would be how can we wear our playfulness glasses more often 
thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review as it really helps us to reach other listeners. We're releasing episodes every two weeks, so do hit subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on more playful inspiration. Don't forget you can find us at www.whyplayworks.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to join our growing community of people united by the idea of play at work, you can sign up to the Playworks Collective on the homepage. If you have any ideas for future episodes, topics you'd like to hear about, guest suggestions, or questions about the work we do with organisations, we would love to hear from you. Your feedback really matters to us, so please drop us a line at hello at whyplayworks.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new guest, and we hope you'll join us then.